You check your Twitter feed, and it seems a congresswoman is being harassed by a group of anonymous trolls. You feel sorry for them because some of the things they're saying are clearly not correct. There's a lot of hate speech and rumblings of a riot. You wonder why Twitter hasn't taken any action yet. It's been up for several hours. Twitter finally resolves the harassment after five hours. Why did it take so long, though? Today we're digging into Twitter working on a safety mode that blocks mean tweets. We're also going to be taking a look at Firefox and how it has actually beefed up cookie security. And it's really actually leading the way for the industry in terms of security. That's pretty awesome. We're going to take a look at John Deere and their right to not repair or repair. And then we're also going to take a look at some good news for coffee. And, uh, you know, I know that's contradictory to what we already discussed, but coffee does appear to be good for you. There's some good news there for us. Let's jump into it. As far as Twitter working on a safety mode that blocks mean tweets, essentially what it boils down to is they're working on a new tool that blocks basically abusive information. There's really not a whole lot of discussion or information on this right now from Twitter's side. They did release a couple screenshots that seem to show that it's going to stop insults, name-calling, hate speech, and perhaps even some more. Really, in my opinion, this is going to be a good thing because we don't have to wait for those human moderators to jump on board and figure out if that's actually a mean tweet or not. My primary concern is the repercussions and resolution of those disciplinary actions. If I get banned or if I'm told I'm tweeting mean stuff by Twitter's robots, how long is it going to take me to be unbanned from that? The disciplinary actions they have in place right now involve blocking tweets at you from that individual who's being mean to you for a week, as well as devaluing their content. Devaluing is really vague right now. We don't know the details as to what they're specifically going to do. All they really mentioned was, hey, by the way, this is also going to come with a, your tweets will not reach as many people as they normally do. So I'm really a little concerned about that. I don't know what all is going to come about from this. I do hope it's pretty accurate. I would imagine they're probably going to do a couple different levels, like a, yeah, we definitely know this is bad, or, hey, you know, maybe we need to do some review on this and make sure it's bad before we actually take action on it. So that's that's going to be interesting as it kind of evolves. Now, there are lots of advantage to auto-moderation. I, I certainly do not disagree with the actions they're taking here. I think it's a step in the right direction. But one of the things that I kind of want to mention here is by having an automated system manage these hate speech tweets, for instance, it allows Twitter as a company to deflect blame for somebody's post being removed. They can say, well, it's because the automated system flagged it. That's potentially going to help reduce the friction, I guess is the best way to put it, in my opinion, the friction that Twitter will feel when one of these posts gets removed. I'm curious if this is in response to India potentially banning Twitter. I know we covered that yesterday uh, with the not World Wide Web and the Splinternet. And if you haven't heard those terms yet, we've got some really cool definitions in there for you yesterday that help explain a little bit about what's going on with that. 
But I do wonder if this is in relation to that or if they've been working on this for a little while because they knew this was coming. It's difficult to say right now how they're going to implement it across the board for that other area of should we and do we have to moderate everything that's going through our system. One of the really nice advantages right now is I can go out on Twitter and I can feel like I can express my opinion without feeling like I'm going to be stifled or like things are going to come crashing down on me. Another feature announced by Twitter is super followers where you can subscribe to a feed and receive unique benefits for paying the person who's putting the tweet out there. Another feature is super followers where you can subscribe to a Twitter feed and receive unique benefits for paying the person who's putting the tweet out there. In one of the screenshots, they actually feature $4.99 per month to gain access to exclusive content, deals, a supporter badge, and even more than that. There's not a whole lot of information related to the super follower yet, but I presume the majority of the funds, if not all of them, will actually go directly into the account that published the tweet. This is kind of competing on the same level as Patreon and all those other different platforms that allow you to subscribe and stay on a month-to-month basis with independent developers, so I really do see that system potentially working out in our benefit. I am cautiously optimistic that most of the tweets are still going to be free, but I also believe that independent developers do need a little bit more options in terms of being able to encourage users to pay them for unique content. And there's a lot of really good stuff out there, so I I see this optimistically coming out quite well for all of the people involved. Hopefully consumers will feel the same way at the end of the day. So the other day I mentioned that I might actually be switching to Brave Browser. I did not switch to Brave. I know. I, I I was going to try it again. I've tried Brave many, many times. There's just certain features of Brave that I'm not a huge fan of. And so as a result, I have found myself always migrating back to Google Chrome. I recognize that they're built on the same platform, and I recognize that they're almost identical uh, in terms of what they can functionally do and extensions. But at the same time, I really don't want to jump into the Chrome ecosystem again. So I actually jumped on board to Firefox, and Firefox just recently announced a new feature called Total Cookie Protection. That's their words, not mine, uh, but that's, that's what they call it. What it does is it creates an individual container, almost like a little box if you want. They call them cookie jars. You know, there's different ways you can look at it in terms of analogies. But you're putting all your cookies for a specific site into that box or into that cookie jar, and then those boxes are not able to communicate with each other and essentially what it does is it creates kind of like a seal if you were to put the lid on the cookie jar or tape up the box it creates a division between each site that you visit that stores information on your computer that's really helpful i am excited about this and i'm glad that i'm using firefox right now i jumped over to firefox because fave icons which is another podcast we featured by the way fave icons can be used to track you on the internet. Now, I don't really care about my privacy a whole lot, honestly, but I just, I don't want to feel like I'm giving it away for free. I want to make them work for it a little bit more. There are exceptions to the cookie rules. For instance, when you try and log in with Google or Facebook on another website, you still have to transfer some of that data from one website to the other. 
you have to say, hey, yes, I did successfully get logged into Google and this is my encrypted key or whatever the case is. There are other ways that you can log in through those, but cookies is something that Firefox still allows and you can still communicate across sessions, across tabs with those login cookies. Other browsers have implemented this. You know, you've got your Safari. Google Chrome is still working on their release, which blocks cookies like this from tracking you. Brave should keep you safe in terms of cookies and super cookies and tracking like that. It was announced that it would be available two years from January 2020 on Google Chrome. I don't know how well that's going to come out, but I do want to mention that there is another sneaky way to track you through the use of basically where you type in the URL. So when you go to google.com, it pops up with a www.google.com at the very top. That's the website address. That's your URL. You can do a lot of fancy footwork and encourage tracking through some manipulations there. I'm not going to dig into it. It's pretty complicated and very heavy and deep stuff when it comes to, you know, modifying those those types of things. But that additional layer of work has stopped it from becoming widespread. It is definitely still out there, and there are sites that do it. I didn't find what specific sites do it, but I know there are sites out there that do it. There's over 7,000 of them. As a result, that's, that's a bit of a concern for a lot of the security analysts out there. Firefox and Brave protect against it, as far as we can tell, but Chrome and Safari do not currently offer protection against that sneaky method inside of the domain name. Safari is aware and working on a solution. Chrome, on its end, has an awful lot of work left to get to the point where Brave and Firefox are. Even Safari. I mean, Chrome, we know Chrome is, is produced by Google. We know that Chrome and Google are essentially advertising people. And your information is extremely valuable to Google. So, The challenges there are numerous, and I don't know if it's ever going to come out on Google Chrome. They said it will, but it's difficult to say for sure. John Deere and DRM are one in the same. DRM is digital rights management. Essentially, in order for you to be able to do something on a John Deere tractor, you have to have a special key that is issued to you by John Deere specifically. And that special key allows you to go in, modify certain things, and say, hey, I installed this new part, it looks good to go, run your tests, make sure it's good to go. And as a result, that's that's one of the huge friction points that farmers out there are having right now. To put this into perspective, there can be over 100 sensors on a tractor, and... An error in any one of those sensors will reduce the tractor into a limp mode. And I'm putting limp in quotes. Limp mode basically means that it's not going to do very much for you at all. It'll still run and it'll still drive around, but it's not going to enable you to use the combine or anything else that you might be using on a farm in general. According to a Kansas farmer, Jared Wilson he lost an estimated thirty to sixty thousand dollars in income on one season because it took thirty-two days to repair a mechanical valve with a dealer. A mechanical valve is basically something that says yes, it's open or no, it's not open. When you look at a motorcycle, 
there's a mechanical valve on turning on and off the gas. So you can turn the gas off completely and starve the engine of gas. On a washing machine, there's your handle, your faucet for turning off the water. That's a mechanical valve. On your shower, turning the shower water on, that's a mechanical valve. So a mechanical valve is something that doesn't require electronics for it to move and operate and do what it needs to do. If the parts or the repair equipment had been made available to that farmer, he's fairly certain he could have actually repaired the equipment himself. Instead, he had to sit and wait 32 days for John Deere to repair it themselves because the dealer specifically said you must go to a dealer in order to repair it. That's absurd. It's a mechanical valve. I I just don't understand that. I knew it was getting out of hand in the farming industry. I've actually hinted at it a couple times before. I've even discussed it on my personal life with people. When you talk about iPhones and Apple and kind of the whole right to repair movement in general, that movement is centered around the idea that when you purchase a piece of equipment, it's yours. You're not leasing it from somebody else. What that means is if I've got a MacBook Pro or an Apple iPhone, I've purchased that. I own that piece of equipment. I should be able to repair whatever breaks on it if I have the technical skills to do it and or want to. So the challenge is when you try and repair those devices yourself, there's a couple unintended consequences. A lot of those people out there like Apple, John Deere, they're saying, no, you can't actually repair those devices because we know if you touch that device, it could very well break in four other locations that you're not aware of. This has a myriad of benefits for those manufacturers, such as Apple and John Deere. Those benefits are that they get to control the entire supply line from start to finish. They know what parts are going in what machines. They know that when a machine turns on, it's going to operate exactly the way they expect it to. Another thing that it benefits them on is they get to mark those parts up and their service. So they get to double dip, sometimes even triple dip, on those devices themselves. And that's really where kind of the argument comes in between the right to repair movement and the manufacturers. They're saying, hey, if you put third-party pieces in your device or your piece of equipment, we don't know that it's going to function the way you want it to, so we're just going to stop you from being able to do that. The right to repair movement people are looking at it going, well, I don't care if you think it's not the right part. I know it's the right part, and I know it's going to function the way I want it to, so let me put it in. Let me toggle a switch in the software that says, yes, I'm aware I've installed this third-party part. Yes, I accept those risks. But don't stop me from being able to use my device or piece of equipment, because that's not fair. I purchased this device. I shouldn't have to rely on you to fix the device. So that's kind of, the, kind of some of the challenges. It's, it's quite a different world we live in. We used to be able to pop open the back panel of a phone and switch the battery out when it died. Now, when you want to change a battery, you need an assortment of specialized tools, skills, and software to be able to calibrate the device to a new battery. I really hope and continue to push for right to repair on pretty much everything. There is no reason why a consumer should not be able to repair their device. Even though I do repairs and I make money off of doing those repairs, I would still expect the consumer to be able to repair those devices if they were so well equipped to be able to do so. Unfortunately, sometimes it feels like we're being beaten by companies that care more about the bottom line than the output of a tool or device. 
They don't really look at it as a productivity tool. They look at it as a way to make money. And that really is unfortunate for us as consumers. But it is the way our life is right now. Good news for coffee makers. Well, at least I think it's good news for coffee makers. It's really hard to say, considering earlier we did a podcast episode on how coffee increases the size of the brain slightly when you drink it. But generally speaking, I I know I've been assaulted for my dietary choices by a variety of individuals. I know, I know, I really should eat healthier and I should add more plants and vegetables to my diet, but I really enjoy those fatty burgers and pizza. In a potential contradiction to the podcast we did earlier, coffee seems to have a new unseen and undetected benefit to it. One of those benefits that just came out recently is it has a potential to reduce the risk of heart failure. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. I don't pretend to know all the different benefits, and I'm not promoting drinking coffee, but I do follow the news about coffee. So if you really have questions about coffee and your caffeine intakes, then I definitely suggest you speak with your primary care physician or somebody, a nurse, uh, somebody who has more medical experience than we do. With that in mind, one of the benefits that coffee could potentially carry is a reduced risk of heart failure. The study analyzed hundreds of factors and decades-long data from three large health studies. Those studies had over 20,000 participants, so it was a lot of people that they looked at. And they were combining a bunch of different studies together, so that's how they got such a large pool of people. They then processed the study information using machine learning, which is... AI or robotics or computers, to understand the results that they were getting. With that in mind, they discovered something that was not previously associated with coffee, and that was it has an associated benefit to reduce heart failure. Drinking two cups of coffee seems to be the ideal amount, offering about a 31% reduced risk of heart failure. It is important to note, according to the study, we don't actually know enough from the results of this specific study to recommend drinking more coffee. If you're drinking two cups already, great. If you're drinking more than two cups, you're still getting that benefit, but I guess it goes down a little bit. It dropped from 31% down to 29%, so there certainly is a chance that drinking more than three cups of coffee could cause some challenges. My father always tells me, everything is healthy for you in moderation. So as long as you moderately consume fat, you should be safe. If you do enjoy coffee and you drink a couple cups a day, I don't see a whole lot of challenges with that. And you're definitely in the category of getting the benefits of reduced heart failure. With that said, again, another disclaimer, I'm not a doctor. I cannot recommend you to drink coffee. I do not endorse that you should drink coffee. I like coffee. That's why I'm covering it. But it is good to know. And that's the wrap-up for today. You know, I am thrilled on one hand that coffee is once again good for me, whereas earlier this week was bad for me. On the other hand, it's kind of like one of those situations where I don't know if coffee is actually good for you or bad for you. It seems to have both good and bad effects to it. Maybe they all cancel each other out and become like a double negative, for instance. But the end result is I'm probably going to continue to consume coffee no matter what. It used to be considered carcinogen, by the way, which causes cancer. But that was our show for today. If you have any questions or concerns, feel free to email us at support at innovated.tech. 
You can also contact us at 888-722-2402 by phone. If you go to our Facebook page, it's tech underscore innovated. You can leave comments on there. We have a post up for each podcast we do. So feel free to leave comments on there. Share, like, and send it over to your friends. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day.